my colleagues keep asking you indirect questions, to which you can only reply in a roundabout way. It would be better to call a spade a spade, so let's talk about torture. I understand. And you? Have you no question? They've all been asked. I'd just like more precise answers. Let's try to be precise. The word torture isn't used in our orders. We use interrogation as the only valid police method against clandestine activity. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Lane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 108, which is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I picked The Battle of Algiers from 1966 directed by Gilo Pontecorvo, with Brahim Hajjaj, Sadi Yassef, and Jean Martin. And by the way, Sadi Yassef also wrote the book that inspired the film and produced the film. The Battle of Algiers reconstructs the events that occurred in Algiers, the capital of French Algeria, between November 1954 and December 1957. I want to give you some context of the film before we get started, and I'm going to try to not make it sound like an extended history lesson. We begin with the organization of revolutionary cells in the Casbah, and there's partisan warfare between the Muslims and the Pied-Noir, and both sides commit acts of increasing violence, and then France sends French army paratroopers to the city to fight against and capture members of the National Liberation Front, or the FLN. The paratroopers' goal here is to assassinate or capture the leadership of the FLN. Now, I've studied France for a long time, but I didn't even realize that the French occupation of Algeria, or the colonization, lasted for 130 years. During that period, especially in the beginning, the beginning of the conquest that lasted until about 1875, almost a million indigenous Algerians were dead as a result of violence or European diseases. And so also during that period, these French settlers came over and they became known as the Pieds Noir, people originally from France. But then during that period, we have multiple generations of Europeans who were then essentially Algerians, having been born and bred in Algeria. Now, what does that translate to? Does that mean the black feet? Is that what that is? It does. And it's basically a negative pejorative term. It was based on sailors having black feet working on coal ships. Now again, during that period, the French are colonizing it, and the government is trying to make Algeria an assimilated part of France. They started to give a lot of power to indigenous Berber tribes, but they didn't give any power to the Muslim population. The Muslims lacked political and economic status in that colonial system. So then tensions just continue to rise and rise until 1954, which is really the first violent events to lead to what became known as the Algerian War. 
Well, the film itself starts in 1957, but almost immediately flashes back to that time that you were just referring to. Technically, it begins in the aftermath of a torturous interrogation of a somewhat abject Algerian by the French army. Now, my instinct or tendency is to first try and place this within the larger continuum of war films. It helps me get a handle on it a little more when I compare it to something like The Grand Illusion, for instance. For example, that was partially something between gentlemen, which was an absurd thing to think about war even then, I feel like. Renoir knew that, and this confirms how far we've moved from that idea in a short 50 years. And this opening completely sets the tone. It paints the French as bullies or just simply powerful, depending on your point of view. Does it go back and forth on that count for you? Because I feel like the power of the underdog sets you down a path to feel certain sympathies, does it not? I think I'm firmly on the side of the non-colonizers here. I think Pontecorvo's sympathies were very clear. The French certainly thought they were. But then Algerians thought it was too sympathetic to the French. So if it's that open to interpretation, how manipulative can it truly be? I agree. I definitely think Ponte Corvo and his co-screenwriter Franco Salinas stood firm in the insurgent camp and they're trying to bring us over. They reference a really interesting book, The Wretched of the Earth from 1961 by France Fanon. And for him, violence was endemic to colonial rule, leaving no option except bloody payment in kind. And the other thing that was incredibly important for Ponte Corvo to express was that both sides, even if one turns out to be absolutely correct and the other absolutely incorrect, is that both will do equally terrible things during war. But right now, we just start with a semi-naked prisoner, a man who's hollow and defeated. He looks like he's about 100 years old. It also reminded me quite a bit of Titty Cut Follies. Well, the unvarnished harshness of that certainly compares. And when you take a look at Pontecorvo's pre-filmmaking background, neorealism really makes sense as a style that he would embrace and try to emulate. His early activism clearly dovetails with neorealism, since that style often documented resistance against totalitarian powers. Another neorealistic touch, the use of non-professionals, helped convey that immediacy of what was happening in the street. Jean Martin as Colonel Mathieu was the only exception to that. And that feeling wasn't always easy to put his hand to. In interviews for this film, Ponte Corvo often spoke of the dictatorship of truth. And the way this got made is just as fascinating as the film itself. When you look at all the things that he had to contend with and some of the tightropes that he had to walk, Ponte Corvo often had to work in direct contradiction of his sponsors. Sadi Yasef whom you mentioned as writer and producer, he was also an FLN commander. The script that he contributed was eventually tossed in favor of something less biased, but his influence was obviously still felt, since he was also one of the stars of the film. And Yasef, while a non-professional, was clearly very charismatic and persuasive, I thought, so it's easy to see how compelling a leader he would be. Even deeper behind the scenes, we have even more powerful players. The National Oil Company of Italy which Italians referred to as the state within the state, they had a long history of murky interactions with countries that were decolonizing in that time period, including Algeria. They also financed a number of documentaries, 
Some of these projects, finished and unfinished, were designed to be especially critical of the French and their crimes against Algeria. Not to get too tinfoil hat about this, but the ENI president died in a mysterious plane crash just a few months after Algerian independence. Now, I'm obviously not trying to say anything about that incident being related to this film. I just want to underscore the very real fact that more people than we realize had an interest in what this film was saying, and a number of them could bring some heavy pressure to bear on the filmmakers. And then I guess no coincidence that post-independence, the leaders of the FLN, who were then the leaders of Algeria, placed preeminent importance on oil. I think it was at this point in my research that I began to feel like this is impossible to take on this film. There are so many rabbit holes we could go down if we wanted to do an exhaustive examination of this film to place it in its own time, its legacy. For the purpose of this episode, I think my best strategy has to be just to concentrate on how it made me feel, which was a lot, and I am not the only one. So you're saying I shouldn't get into the number of religious-related buildings that were in the Casbah before occupation <laughs> and afterwards. Get into whatever you want. I'm interested in hearing whatever you have to say. It's tough for me, too, because as I mentioned, I've studied France for a long time. That was my major when I was in college. I am fascinated by these numbers, but I'll try to keep it to a bit of a minimum. I really think that you described this film best when you said it is very immediate. And I felt that when a specific dimension of the score started to kick in as the soldiers are storming the Casbah, it felt like an action movie. That camera constantly moving, even in the post-interrogation scene. You clearly see that influence of Rossellini, neorealism, and then just something else. I'm going to say the thing that I say in most of our episode discussions, which is watch this film with the sound off, even though the score is so incredible. It is a masterclass in craft. So I felt a lot. So you felt a lot. It made a lot of people feel a lot of things. It won the Golden Lion in Venice over the vociferous protests of the French contingent. Bomb threats thwarted its Paris opening in 1970. One of the things that might be hard for us to grasp now is the immediacy, we keep coming back to that, of this film in America in the late 60s. This debate about how to take up arms against oppressors and when violence is appropriate and even necessary, this was such a period of unrest. The Paris riots in 68, Vietnam. There were parts of the young American audience that were looking at it as a potential playbook for urban guerrilla warfare. We really don't have a contemporary analog for that, at least not yet. Pauline Kael wrote in 1970 that it had become known as the Black Militants Training Film, and this was in the third year of its run already. It had pretty much been in at least one New York theater or another that whole time, that entire three years. Even our favorite punching bag, Bosley Crowther, understood its urgency and significance. You startle me. Yeah, I can't I even believe that. I can't think of anything like this, certainly not a political film in my adult lifetime, can you? I can't. Maybe all the president's men, but this is such a different animal. I don't think young radicals were sitting around watching all the president's men every weekend for three years in a row, is the thing I'm trying to say, I guess, by saying I don't know anything like this. Agreed. And there aren't any terrorists that I know who will say that's their favorite film, as they did with the Battle of Algiers. 
Also in these opening scenes, we see a handful of characters in what could be described as an Anne Frank situation. They're hiding in a crawl space, hidden behind a fake wall, pursued by soldiers, and we get the impression that the fair trial we hear referred to is not exactly likely to occur. If anything, that feels like a chilling reassurance. There's an outcry for a manifesto for Algerians. There's a considerable amount of anti-Muslim sentiment observable in interactions on the street. We have the use of prison to enforce these racial divides. There's the beheading of a militant Muslim. This litany of all the things that Ali's eyes have seen, this is a recipe for radicalization, turning Ali from a petty criminal into a determined and ruthless resistance fighter. That political prisoner you mentioned, he was picked for that role because he had actually been sentenced to death during the insurgency. Now, we talked a little bit about your sympathies, your instincts, Ponticorvo's perceived sympathies. We are already deeply into examining the ends people go to to fight colonization. Do you have a sense at this point, this early in the film, of who's right or who's wrong? How long into the film did it take to develop that for you? I think I come into it with a preconceived idea that all colonization is inherently terrible and wrong. My recommendation, much later in this discussion, will speak to that a little bit as well. I think what it did for me, it made me take a closer look at my empathetic imagination. Is it easier for me to picture myself on one side versus the other? How does that color which side I instinctively take? I think I, like you, always favor the underdog, which is how I perceive the colonized. Generally, no matter what the situation is, I think I'm coming down on the same side as you. And it's still an interesting place to be because we're about to see the reality of the other side and what they're willing to do, the FLN. What this means for them and everyone in between. Well, if we're talking about daily life, we have to talk about the Casbah, right? I mentioned the Grand Illusion and how much had changed in 50 years since then. Is it the same for this landscape, this urban landscape of the Casbah? I think of another Jean Gabin vehicle, Pepe Lamoco, and that film described the Casbah as an unpoliceable labyrinth of transgression even then. That seems pretty apt. It seems like even its own denizens can't keep it contained. That self-policing seems to be kind of a cornerstone of the FLN, trying to rein it in. No drugs, no alcohol, no prostitution, and there's an incredibly brutal scene of a drunk being beaten up by children. We see Ali beating a junkie. There are so many inherent ironies in this, right? The notion that they are spilling over into violence to corral these other behaviors. It's an extreme place, obviously, the Casbah. It's rife with illicit business that resists being controlled. If you're looking for a moderate, measured response, look elsewhere, right? And the echoes of the place are felt all over. This scene with the wino is later echoed in the scene when a paperboy is mobbed by adults. It feels inescapable, and I feel like that's a nod to neorealism as well. Architecture as character, and how it defines and shapes characters' lives, is another tenet of that movement. Is there enough balance in that regard, though? Is the Casbah overemphasized to the point that it undoes some of the us versus them? What I mean is... Do you feel like you know the French areas of the city just as well? I don't quite know the answer to that, but here's my feeling. That because of colonization, trying to make this nation 
assimilate to France, I imagine it as an extension of Paris. So in that respect, I feel like I do understand the French area. I guess what I was struggling with was, does it need two separate and definable geographical spaces to make you feel that divide, that social imbalance? Maybe even more importantly, does it also need more than that dichotomy, good guy, bad guy, to make this feel like it's not an oversimplification? For instance, we never get much of an examination of the native Algerians that fought for the French or the spaces they occupy. I think the decision to place this in the Casbah is important and it separates it from other films. The Casbah is a living, breathing object crammed full because it is a fortress, that's the literal meaning of it, of these people. This film takes us into the heart of the Muslim Algerian. These people are not the exotic other, it's the French who are practically wallpaper at this point. That hadn't really been done before, and it's not commonly done now. And we have Ali as our entry point into this view of the FLN. This process of his radicalization begins with an assignment, and that is to shoot a cop in the street in broad daylight. The gun is going to be provided by a woman in full Muslim covering with a basket. I think this had to be an absolutely shocking moment for a lot of the audience in 1966 when we discover that one of the operatives is a child. Not only that, he is participating in what is viewed in a lot of places as an uncrossable line, killing a police officer. Ali is obviously staunchly committed to his ideals by this point already. This is a test of loyalty, this assignment, and he passes this with flying colors. It's all so jarring. His willingness to do such extreme violence... All of these small moments of insurrection in the streets, in the police stations, these coordinated attacks. The thing I keep coming back to is what else was there like this? Nothing. It wasn't something the average cinemagoer was used to. I feel like, at least to a degree, urban warfare is still somewhat uncommon in film. It certainly was in 1966. Film audiences at the time were much more used to seeing battles carried out in more traditional venues on expansive battlefields, in jungles, on the high seas. For the most part, they hadn't experienced anything like this. Even after having seen real-life examples of it in my lifetime, via the news or more contemporary films, this presentation of it still gets my attention in a way that those other things don't. Pontecorvo's skill at putting all this together, it leaves me with a clear impression of the desperation of these characters and how... The violence is impossible to corral. So, the Arab quarter is under martial law, and prayers ring out over the Casbah. And there's another fascinating glimpse into daily life. That's this private secret wedding that's conducted by the FLN. Now, this wedding ceremony, it provides a strange oasis in the middle of this rising tension and bloodshed. You could view it as a moment of simple joy to be clung to, something to provide hope, another attempt to impose a more conservative structure on this chaotic casbah, a reminder of the religious traditions at stake in this battle. What did this brief matrimonial respite do for you? All I could think was, is this an arranged marriage? Does this woman, who looks like a young girl, does she have any choice in this matter? And that's maybe not what I was intended to be thinking about. I don't know. There are a lot of parallels in terms of being drafted into a war that you didn't necessarily intend on fighting in, so it is definitely a heavy metaphor. Or is she a volunteer in those terms in this fight? 
whatever you choose that it symbolizes to you, this is really our last moment to breathe, I feel like, as these attacks continue and even increase in their ruthless efficiency. They obviously have everyone on edge, and just like the alleys of the Casbah, this pressure also feels inescapable, because as far back as you want to go, it has always been the same, the fear and persecution of the other. Just using this particular religious example, you can go back from 1966 to the Crusades, or you can go forward from there to 9-11. This is not the first nor the last time, I assume, that Western oppression in the Muslim world will lead to radicalization. That just guarantees that the film will always have a place in the larger conversation and will probably always remain controversial on that count. But the way Pontecorvo takes care to frame it, he never lets us forget the cyclical nature of this problem. Is this terrorism? Counterterrorism? Insurgency? Viewing this 50-plus years down the road as we move deeper into the post-colonial era, I think this exposes how little contemporary Western filmmakers and society at large thinks about the legacy of imperialism. You contrast this with something like Zero Dark Thirty. Is there even any room these days in a landscape for a film like The Battle of Algiers? Does it get made in the current climate? It's hard to think of something that is viewed by some factions as a handbook, as something that continues to get made. I truly do marvel at the fact that this even exists. When I think about what it must have taken to stage all of this, and then I marvel at the lightning in a bottle aspect of the confluence of subject matter and technique. You take something like the newsreel look of the film. That technique takes it beyond neorealism for me. To so convincingly approximate that look, it works on the viewer on both an intellectual and an emotional level. You're emotionally affected by the immediacy of it. You feel that jolt of adrenaline when you're swept up in the rush of this handheld action in these cramped stairwells and alleyways. You can barely catch your breath. But even more importantly, you see that documentary style, and it affects you in such a subtle way that you might not even be conscious of it. Your brain equates that style with truth, with having just viewed evidence. That's powerful, and in some ways, it's just as much indebted to the fascist propaganda films that came just before neorealism as neorealism itself which is the other influence that I wanted to bring up earlier when you said there was some other element. To me, that's what it feels like. To me, you are pulling just as much from Lenny Riefenstahl as you are Roberto Rossellini at that point. It's kind of funny that you say that. Okay. Because even though those scenes look spontaneous and that Pontecorvo made a point to say no inch of this film is actual newsreel footage, he would still sometimes draw chalk lines on the ground, dividing it so that the masses would be in separate groups and had to walk on cue in order to get the proper crowd movement. He used multiple cameras, footage from different angles, creating the impression that the crowds were larger than they were. I love that. And also, he would sometimes reshoot scenes 20 times, 30 times, 40 times all to deliberately get the actors looking so tired that they would appear really fatigued and that you would see fear and exhaustion and frustration. I also want to mention the cinematographer Marcello Gatti. He was sentenced to five years in prison in 1943 for defacing a portrait of Mussolini that hung on the walls of Cinecitta. This film is troublemakers from beginning to end, basically. 
I think Black Belly of the Tarantula is the other work of his that I've seen. <laughs> Again, I talked about master craft. There are fascinating night shots, day shots. There's nothing that they don't achieve here. Yes, you mentioned the darkness. We've been focused on the colonized, but in this labyrinth, in these shadows, the colonizers are up to some darkness of their own. We also see what the police are willing to do in retaliation. They set their own bombs, equally indiscriminate in who they kill. Now, it may have been Morricone's score, but it really put me in the mind of the untouchables and doing things the Chicago way. They put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. The difference between these two films, obviously, is the scope of this and the scale of this fight. But that martial snare drum and that insistent Morricone pulse is the through line for me. But this really is a tale as old as time, right? It becomes a chicken or the egg thing where it's been going on so long that no one can even remember who threw the first stone. Is there even a moral high ground to be had? It's about to get even more shocking, at least to my mind. You mentioned before, it's pretty crazy to see a child as an operative. Now we're about to see full use of Muslim women. The score here is so propulsive. It's indigenous Algerian drumming, by the way. Women are just able to move more freely and transport materials because they are not allowed to be touched. And they use this to have an upper hand over the soldiers. Guns are stowed everywhere and used constantly. Well, I'm guessing, based on the way you're saying that, that you were as affected as I was by these women losing their traditional dress, cutting their hair, blending in, passing as French to get through these checkpoints. You were affected by it, but did it feel like an even larger sacrifice than some of the men were making? Because it felt that way to me. It's not just battle they're going into. They are also sacrificing identity, it feels like. Absolutely. Removing their clothes, cutting their hair, dyeing their hair. It felt like surgery almost. It felt like a huge lie. They're the ones that are required to look a certain way, behave a certain way, and then to be something else. It's not the realm of being femme fatales, as it might in another film. It's about being fully something else and almost disgraceful. And I reacted the same way that you did, I think, when I am watching them navigate these checkpoints. When they're on their way to their bombing missions, I was really taken aback at what seems like the incredible naivete of these soldiers, both routinely not touching Muslim women, nor suspecting anyone who appears French. I guess, is this just my 21st century conditioning? It seems like such an exploitable advantage for a determined enemy. Absolutely. It's the height of ridiculousness to imagine that the soldiers understand what's going on here. These groups do seem to have the upper hand, at least at the moment. These women are willing participants, but they do still feel like objects, partially because they're being used as sex objects to exploit the discrimination by Europeans. I think this whole section with picking up the bombs, knowing that there is a timing situation, one of the women has a small son with her. This section, I think, was the absolute best for me. It's almost like I can hear the ticking happening. I absolutely agree with you. And what gets me, we spend a lot of time surveying the faces of the people they will harm. And that does a couple of things for me. First, it makes me very conscious of the nerve, will, and anger 
that this takes. And second, it makes the suspense of these bomb sequences so tough to endure because we spend so much time with innocent victims beforehand, including children eating ice cream. Interestingly, one thing I noted, it's the same Requiem music for both sides when these terrible bombings take place. So it's subconsciously cueing us to the fact that these are not such different situations. A touch I really appreciated is that we only hear the third bomb. We don't witness its devastation. But that, for me, is when the anxiety really sets in. This fear that this just might not stop. This feeling that some of these characters must have. Will it be four bombs? Five bombs? It must be such a terrifying and unreal situation to be in. And the film conveys that with really grim perfection. It makes it real. Some of that being achieved by the fact that the audience is forced to confront a fair amount of gruesome violence. And for neither side is it glamorous nor romanticized. I think that's an important point to make. We see the bloodied and the dead repeatedly. There's no sense that, yay, victory with the bomb for anyone. But it is integral. It's in furtherance of a cause. It does result, though, in the paratroopers being brought in. And this show of force is welcomed by cheering crowds in the European quarter. This military presence in the film is represented by Colonel Mathieu, played by Jean Martin. We mentioned he was the sole professional actor in the cast. Now, Martin was an interesting choice. He had been dismissed from the Théâtre National Populaire for signing the Manifesto of the 121 Against the Algerian War. Martin was also a veteran. He had fought in the Indochina War. He'd also been part of the French Resistance. This Manifesto of the 121 was published in 1960, and it called on the French government to recognize the Algerian War as a legitimate struggle for independence and to denounce the use of torture by the French army and to respect French conscientious objectors. Now that this is beyond the scope of the police and the army has been called in, I think one of the things that gets my attention first is their review of the footage of potential perpetrators of this bombing. That part was particularly chilling to me, knowing what we know as the audience. But once the army arrives, I feel like we begin hurtling towards this inevitable end. We do encounter some interesting ideas along the way, though. I am fascinated by the pyramid structure of these resistance cells and how that protects the larger organization. That each person recruited only knows a couple of other people and vice versa, so nobody really knows who's above them, below them, to the sides of them, and who the overall main leaders are. All of the gamesmanship that takes place in this back and forth at the end is worthy of examination, I think. The army is seeking to manufacture their own reasons to crack down. They're given that excuse because a week-long strike is called by the FLN. And then there's this larger overarching debate of the usefulness of terrorism as a strategy. It's useful in the beginning, but there may be no worth in violence as a long-term solution. They explicitly address how it's hard to start a revolution, harder to sustain it, and even harder to win it. The army seems to have so much leverages in these instances. They have the resources and can often afford to just wait now, obviously, some revolutions succeed, but it takes a massive amount of sustained will, organization, and good luck. The interesting part for me here is realizing how canny Mathieu is 
And understanding that idea that there is political goodwill to be had here that he's trying to earn from these liberal French factions who are writing not in their favor. This particular cell that we're acquainted with, they don't seem to have things in their favor either, though. Their numbers are depleted. Key figures are being killed or captured. I am really particularly taken with this press conference where the French army puts a captured cell leader on display. But not only that, gives the press an opportunity to interact with him. Absolutely no way this is happening today. I think of the Grand Illusion one last time. This is sort of a meeting of equals. Ben Middy acquits himself as a reasonable and intellectually formidable adversary. I would even say based on the fact that they are giving him any opportunity to control the message at all, that in some weird way he has the upper hand here. That's ephemeral, though. He soon hangs himself, but Colonel Mathieu clearly respected him on some level. It's interesting that you say that about that's something that we may not see today. At the same time, it makes this feel ultra-modern to me. This is not playing out in the shadows. We're not hearing secondhand accounts of things. This is so, as you would characterize it, immediate. The faces of the people that you are fighting and who are fighting us. In our opening scene that we play, we refer to this. One journalist stands up to ask about torture, and Matthew's response opens a whole can of worms, as far as I'm concerned. Legality can be inconvenient. That's a bold thing to say directly to the press, although these days anything goes. Yeah, that could be ripped from the headlines now. We're still having these discussions. He posits, though, that we survived Buchenwald, and you mentioning he was a French resistance fighter, that actually has some resonance with him personally. But, as he says, now we're the Nazis. There's always that price to pay for winning the revolution. If you survive, there is the potential that you eventually become the thing you fought against, the thing that you hated. That's followed soon after by a bracing torture montage that, at least for me, it does nothing but underscore that this path breeds nothing but contempt and a desire for revenge. This is no way to win hearts and minds. I love that shot in the Casbah of the one open patch of sky that's blotted out by a helicopter. Now, you were talking about the leftist press and their general perception of Matthew. This presentation of him as rational, as sympathetically intellectual, do you think ultimately this shows ambivalence toward the question of colonization or the position of the colonizers? I don't think it's ambivalence. I think ambivalence was in people attacking their own people. I think this was simply reality. This is what we're up against. This is a person who is doing a job, who is smarter probably than everyone else, who understands the enemy, but is sent there for a reason. He doesn't have that fervent view of we must stay here at all costs. It's simply, this is where I am in the hierarchy. This is what I've been tasked to do, and I do it. Though now that I say that, maybe that is ambivalence. Ambivalence in his own position, maybe. The fact that the film still raises all of these questions, I think, is what makes it so valuable and important 50-plus years down the road. It still challenges the viewer to examine the world and yourself. It's not like we've come up with a solution to any of this since 1966. And I really like Peter Labusa's very succinct assessment of this. For a film full of specifics, perhaps one of the most timeless films ever made. 
Jafar is now in the army's sights and he is trapped in a house. We have two chilling promises here. Either come out or we'll blow the whole place up and you'll get a fair trial if you come out now. And the resistance members respond to this laughable offer of a fair trial with another hidden bomb in a basket. There is nothing that you would traditionally think of as honor on either side. That's just not the world we live in anymore. Up to the very end, even though it seems very obvious to me which side he favors, Pontecorvo is attempting to present this idea that both sides are very similar in important ways. Would Mathieu have kept his word? No way to know. The resistance is also obviously unpredictable. Jafar is cornered and surrenders. There's ambivalence around that as well. Is this cowardice or living to fight another day? I think two things about if you want the French to stay, you accept all consequences of that. And if you want the French to leave, you also accept all consequences. We're really in the final push here. We're back to where Ali has been hiding and the soldiers have found him courtesy of the informer. When I first saw it, I thought, this is his family. And we now know that that's not really the case. Right. What we know viewing it the second time, we understand that now the resistance as we know it has been whittled down to almost nothing. These four people hiding in this crawl space, including a child, represent all that is left of this faction. The place is rigged to blow. Ali says nothing when the soldiers call for him. He encourages the others to go, but he doesn't trust the military. None of this, I'm going to get a fair trial. Outside in the Casbah, there's praying, there's waiting. We see their faces, and then we see the explosion. The military, at least, is proclaiming that the FLN is decapitated. It'll all be over soon because, after all, we've been fine for 130 years. Once we return to this Anne Frank scenario, especially with bombs attached to it now, this is when it really strikes me how personal, and I'm going to say this one last time, immediate, Pontecorvo has made this. All I can do now is ask myself what the death of these four people achieves. I can't think of it on a mass scale anymore. I am forced to consider it on the level of individual men, women, and children. Some of them innocent, some of them not so much. And all I can see that you have done is make yet another case for ongoing vengeance. To understand it completely, though, how is that approach going to serve me? It doesn't reasonably cover everything. The scale and scope is realistically far beyond that. A very important thing they say in the film, to put it all in perspective, Algiers is not all Algeria. And really, those four people were not the end. We fast forward to 1960. It starts all over again. This time it's a bit different. French public opinion is changing. We see all these homemade flags, massive demonstrations, and we answer the question of what do you want with independence. We get those native drums again. This time they almost sound like locusts. And I love that final image of the woman waving the flag, dancing, chanting. Ultimately, I think it's a mistake for either side to oversimplify their enemies and their neighbors. You can never be sure of the collective will and what might happen. These unified demonstrations and success in achieving independence for Algeria is definitive proof of that. So here's what came after. French rule ended in 1962. Algeria gained complete independence. 
And at the same time, the war led to the death of hundreds of thousands of Algerians and hundreds of thousands of injuries came with it. Both sides really understated the amount of wounded and dead. And also, the war uprooted about 2 million Algerians. So an overall question for you, because I want to talk more about what we don't see. We know that the filmmakers used composite characters, basically, for historically based actual people. For example, Mathieu was based on several military figures. Where, in general, do you fall on the use of composite characters in historically based films? Unless it's just comic to the point of being absurd, I really don't mind it. I actually kind of like the condensation sometimes. I know in many of these stories that are so convoluted that there's just no way you're going to get the truth anyway. So if I'm being a stickler about that, I'm being extremely unrealistic. So generally, I don't mind them at all. I just wish they were all played by Orson Welles, which will come into play in my recommendation. Uh-oh. Well, before we get there, I want to talk about something that I think is important to also provide context. Here's who we don't see represented really at all in the film. Those are the Harkis, Algerian Muslims who served in the French army considered to be basically French loyalists, and this could be for a couple of reasons. Most notably, security for a family and also employment, which was a key thing, rather than, for example, fidelity to France. There could have been as many as one million Muslim loyalists who served in the French army. The big deal here, we don't see them, and we also don't see what happened to them after the war. Thousands of them died in reprisals after the war, specifically by lynch mobs. And also, post-independence, France did not want them to massively resettle in France. They were interned in detainee camps. They were subject to racism for years afterwards. There are people who essentially had no place. So obviously with what you mentioned there, the aftermath of the war and the things I was talking about in the beginning, all of these potential tangents that we could follow that are equally fascinating. To bring it back to the film itself, do you feel like this artifact, this document, is still as incendiary as it was in 1966? I feel like it was made yesterday and last week and a decade ago and a hundred years ago and a hundred years from now. I can't imagine ever watching this again and thinking, gee, that's really lost its power. Is it just the sad state of human existence that war is just eternal? I guess there are enough films about it that one would think so. Which is a clever segue to my recommendation. Which is what? My recommendation this time is, Is Paris Burning? from 1966 as well. And this is directed by René Clément, and I pick it for a few reasons. First, look at these contributors. It stars Orson Welles, Jean-Paul Belmondo, Alain Delon, Charles Boyer, Simone Signore, Kirk Douglas, Jean-Pierre Cassel, Glenn Ford, Anthony Perkins, Yves Montand, Robert Stack, Jean-Louis Trinillon, Michelle Piccoli, and that's just a fraction of the cast. We're not talking about Paris's burning here. No, it's an, that would be really entertaining. <laughs> I think that would be fantastic to see that with this cast. But no, this is a question, not a statement. A number of writers worked on it too, primarily Gore Vidal and Francis Ford Coppola. Second, I choose it because it addresses this question of specific geography and urban warfare. 
It's about a German general who is given the orders by Adolf Hitler to burn Paris to the ground if allies invade it or he cannot maintain control of the city. He ignores those orders, giving time and encouragement to the resistance fighters who are holding out for liberation forces to arrive. This is an epic historical drama. Is it the greatest film ever made? No. But it is historically significant, I think, and it merits at least one viewing if you're at all interested in history in general or the history of war in particular. With a cast this large and a three-hour running time, it suffers from being a little overstuffed, obviously. But what works in its favor, for me at least, what it's overstuffed with is detail. So it may be a little dry for general moviegoers, but it's really fun for war or history buffs. If you like those sorts of epics with a cast a mile long, all shot in the actual locations in Paris, about 160 of them in this case, then you might really enjoy this warts and all. I definitely do. What about you? The recommendation I chose was really because of some things that I mentioned earlier. This idea that in this film, in the Battle of Algiers, it's the French who are denied personality. We're definitely seeing the world through the eyes of the Muslim Algerians. And also that violence is endemic to colonialism. So I chose The New World from 2005, directed by Terrence Malick with Colin Farrell, Corianka Kilcher, and Christian Bale, all about the English colonization of Virginia and the changing world of Pocahontas and the native inhabitants. We got the chance to watch and discuss this recently due to some special Patreon support. It was a commentary track that we recorded. And I've been thinking about it a lot in relation to the Battle of Algiers. Because in this instance of the New World, colonization has directly affected my life. I think there are a lot of parallels here. The violence, those early days of French rule and how many natives were lost to European diseases. And at that point, we're only about 200 years removed from those two events. History repeating itself. With the Battle of Algiers not portraying Algerians as the exotic other, in quotation marks, I don't think the line is quite so distinct in the New World because we're on a journey, at least in part of the film, with John Smith. We're seeing the natives through his eyes. They aren't given the opportunity for language in the same way, and it's not their first-person tale. Of course, being Terrence Malick, it's a visual stunner, and it continues to stick with me in a way I didn't quite expect it to. And it was a new experience for me, so it might be for our audience as well. So I hope everybody will check it out. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Is Paris Burning and The New World. And that brings us to the end of episode 108. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a lot of great shows, expanding and putting out more great content all the time. You can find that at 25thframemedia.com. 
We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. First of all, a special thanks to Aaron West over at Criterion Now, who recently had me on to discuss what might be coming with Criterion label number 1000. My idea is bananas and just crazy enough to work. I'm not going to say it here. Go over to Criterion Now and listen to episode 88 if you'd like to find out what that is. I wasn't on the episode, but I'm going to make my pitch for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. (laughs) Perfect. In addition to Aaron, we'd also like to thank Spencer Seams, the fine gentleman of FUDs on Film, Brad McDermott, Amanda Schultz, Michael Cannon, Mickey Chiechi, Andy Wolverton, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinemaried, Jacqueline Ellis, and our friend Laura Cannon from the Fatal Femmes podcast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Twenty-fifth frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.